Thanks so much for reading, Shireen. And can I add my welcome to that of Paul's? It's lovely to have everyone with us on this special day for us as we have our baptism and we have our carol service this evening. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Please keep your Bibles open. We'll be referring to this passage quite often. Pray together. Verse 45, Elizabeth says of Mary, And blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. We thank you for the example here of Mary, Heavenly Father. We pray that the same would be true of us, that we would be those who are blessed because we believe that there will be a fulfillment of what you speak to us in your word this morning. Amen. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. That's what we're going to be singing this afternoon at our carol service. Christmas time is a time of great joy. We're in this series in the opening chapters of Luke's gospel leading up to Christmas morning. And on Christmas morning, we're going to consider these words that were said to the shepherds on the very first Christmas day. Do you remember them? I bring to you news of great Joy. Joy is the subject of this passage. Joy which is uncontainable. Joy which is unrestrained. Joy which is singing out at the top of your voice joy. What was experienced here in the encounter between Elizabeth and Mary. The scene begins with Mary. Mary, the young nobody from nowhere, from that nothing that nothing matters northern town of Nazareth. Just a few days ago, she had the most extraordinary experience. She was visited by the angel Gabriel. She was told that while remaining a virgin, she would be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. She would conceive and give birth to a son, Jesus, the Son of the Most High, the eternal King of God, the one in the line of David, the one who would establish his eternal everlasting kingdom. And now here in verse 39, having responded immediately... To the angel's words, she has made a three to four day journey as quickly as her legs could possibly carry her up to the big smoke in Judah, where her cousin Elizabeth lives. The door swings open and before Mary can blurt out a word, Elizabeth in verse 42 beats her to it and she cries out, look with me, to that verse, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then verse 44, for behold... When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And Mary's response in verse 46, just like Elizabeth's and just like the baby in the womb, John the Baptist, is pure joy. Joy at the coming of her son and her king. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. Joy at the coming of Jesus. That is what Christmas is meant to be about. Elizabeth, John the Baptist in the womb, Mary, all are models of the appropriate joy that we are to experience at Christmas time. Not, as Paul mentioned, the tinsel-thin joy that the world knows around us, that doesn't understand the significance of Christmas, but the deep, significant, healthy joy 
that comes from knowing the awesome things that God has done in his son. Those reasons for joy are found in this episode and especially in the words of Mary's song, a song that has come to be known as the Magnificat from the first word, first line, that word magnify. It's been sung down the centuries by Christians. Those familiar with the Anglican prayer book will know that it's sung after the Old Testament reading every day at evening prayer. One of the commentators I read said, this Magnificat is like an aria in an opera. The action almost stops so that the situation may be savoured more deeply. That's what I want us to do this morning. What is the secret to joy at Christmas? Well, two things we learn from Mary's song. First, we can rejoice and rejoice authentically because in Christ, God remembers to rescue. Rejoice because in Christ, God remembers to rescue. Look with me to verse 54 and the conclusion of Mary's song about what God has done. She says, or rather she sings, God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. That word mercy in verse 53 appeared earlier in verse 50 as well. It's the Greek way, the Greek Old Testament way of translating the Hebrew Old Testament word hesed or chesed. Also translated steadfast love. A key word that comes up over and over again in the Old Testament. Hesed, mercy, steadfast love that begins with God's word to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. God's promise, do you remember, to bless Abraham and his offspring. To bless Abraham and through Abraham to bless the whole world. A promise that would ultimately come in the arrival of an offspring, the Messiah. A king in the line of King David. One who would defeat God's enemies and save God's people and put things right in the world and establish an eternal kingdom. Hesed, mercy, steadfast love, the promise to rescue. And if we know our Bibles time and time again, we'll know that in Israel's history, they are suffering at the hands of God's enemies. And on the surface, it might look like God has forgotten, but he does not, for he cannot, because he has bound himself to his promise and he will remember to rescue. He never forgets, but he chooses to act in his perfect timing. Do you remember in Exodus chapter 2? God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. But now we have the climactic moment of remembering, when all of that history of God's steadfast love is fulfilled at one point, the moment of ultimate remembering, as it were, the moment of maximal joy. Verse 42, John the Baptist in the womb leaps for joy. He gives a great kick, I think. John the Baptist, the last prophet of the Old Testament era, who in his preaching is going to be summing up all of the witness of the Old Testament and everything about his preaching centers on his cousin, Jesus. Listen to what Christopher Ashe says in his little devotional. In this lovely moment, we learn that the whole of the Old Testament, as it were, jumps for joy in the presence of the one to whom it pointed. 
for whom it has longed for, for all these centuries of waiting. This rejoicing from Elizabeth, from John, from Mary, is because God is the one who remembers and can never forget to rescue his people. Joy for Mary, joy for Mary because she believed the promise to rescue. Verse 45, which we began with in prayer, Elizabeth says to Mary, and blessed is she, that is you, Mary, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. That picks up what we've just seen in the previous section. Picks up what was Mary's response to Gabriel at the announcement of this baby. Verse 37, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord, says Mary. Let it be to me according to your word, according to your promise. She trusts God's word, which is in stark contrast to Zechariah, who came in the episode before. In almost exactly the same type of scene, Gabriel comes to this important priest at the center of Israel's life in Jerusalem, announces a miraculous birth. What is Zechariah's response? Verse 18, don't turn to it. He says, how shall I know this? In other words, how can I possibly be sure? He does not believe, he does not trust, and he's struck dumb. Mary, by contrast, trusts the God who is able to do the impossible, to rescue according to his promise. Think about it for a moment. Zechariah here, on the one hand, the priest in the temple, the expert in the scriptures, the one at the center of Israel's life, the one who ought to have known all of the promises of God, which would find its fulfillment. And then here's a man who is a someone from somewhere. On the other hand, Mary, and nobody from nowhere. A teenage girl from the sticks, but one who believed the word of God. She was not a fool. She knew God's track record in the scriptures. She was no scholar, but she knew her scriptures, and we know that because every word of her song is virtually a replay of Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. She knew the scriptures. She knew the God who keeps his promise, and therefore she did the right thing, the logical thing, the obvious thing, and she believed, and it led to her joy. Listen to what Bishop Ryle says. Let us learn from this holy woman's example to lay firm hold on Bible promises. Promises are, in fact, the manna that we should daily eat and the water that we should daily drink as we travel through the wilderness of this world. We see not yet all the things put under us. We see not yet Christ and heaven and the book of life and the mansions prepared for us. We walk by faith. And this faith leans on promises. But on those promises, we may lean confidently. They will bear all the weight we can lay on them. We shall find one day, like the Virgin Mary, that God keeps his word and that what he has spoken, so he will always do in due time. That is the road to joy. Believing the true promises of God. Believing the God who remembers to rescue. No matter what it looks like outwardly, he will do it. For us individually, if we trust in him, for those in this world who believe in him, he will keep his promise through his son. Rejoice because in Christ, God is the one who remembers to rescue. But how does he do it? How does he bring about his great rescue? Well, we find it again in the words of Mary's song, He rescues 
by bringing down the proud and lifting up the humble. In other words, rejoice because in Christ, God is the one who reverses to rescue. Remembers to rescue, but reverses to rescue. Verse 49, God is the mighty one, it says. That is, he's the powerful one. That is, he is the true God who rules the heavens and the earth, the one who spoke world, the world into existence. He's the one in verse 51 who has shown his strength with his arm. Time and again in the Old Testament, God's power, when it is exercised to rescue his people and defeat his enemies, is described as the working of his right arm, his strong arm. And that strong arm against rivals is one that is placed against rivals, which opposes those who are proud. Did you see that come up again, time and again, in the verses? Verse 51, Mary sings, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 53, And the rich He has sent away empty. This is the point that Mary is making. God is the God who will not, who cannot, tolerate rivals. Isaiah 42 verse 8, he will not share his glory with another. And with the coming of Christ is the climax of this characteristic. God is the God who will establish his king on Zion, his holy hill, and will defeat all of the proud enemies of this world who's dare to stand against him. Remember all the way back in history, this has been God's pattern time and again. Genesis chapter 11, when we as humanity in our pride built up the Tower of Babel and thought we could compete with the Lord of the heavens and the earth, what did he do? He scattered us to the ends of the earth. He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Well, verse 52, he brings down the mighty from their thrones. Think about proud Pharaoh who dared to oppose the Lord, who said, who is the Lord? that I should obey him and let Israel go. God's response? Pharaoh and his chariots under the sea, the great, great sea. His promise was kept. I will get glory over Pharaoh. Well, think about Nebuchadnezzar, the great and powerful, most powerful man in all the universe at the time, the king of Babylon, who stood by his Empire, looking over from his balcony and said, Is this not great Babylon which I have built with my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? A few moments later, some visitor from some other ancient land comes up to the servants in the Babylonian court. Uh, Who's that uh, strange fellow over there playing around in the grass and uh, mooing like a cow? Uh, That's um, the great king Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of the world. No, the Lord will not, will not permit any to oppose him. There is, of course, a warning for us in our pride. We may be proud through much of our achievements in life, that pride which is fed by success. Or paradoxically, we might be proud in thinking too little of ourselves and wallowing in our failures, which is really just pride disappointed. Often we swing between the both. But however pride shows itself in us, we need to be warned because Mary's son will scatter us in our pride. Or verse 53, the rich, says Mary, 
he has sent away empty. The commentator Daniel Bock says, often the social circumstances of the rich make them independent and insensitive to God or to their fellow human beings, while the poor often are more dependent upon God. And isn't that true in our life experience? And when we speak of the rich, well, let's be honest, we must include ourselves. Those who at this time of history and in this country must be, surely, counted among those who are at risk of being self-sufficient because of material wealth. We think just forward to a few chapters and the rich fool in Luke's gospel, the man who stands out on the balcony, I suppose a bit like Nebuchadnezzar, looking over the harbour from his harbour view house, sipping on champagne, $30 million, $40 million in the bank, thinking about how he's going to enjoy it by the seaside for the rest of his life. Suddenly a heart attack, taken to the hospital, dead on arrival. You fool, says God. Who's going to get your wealth now? God doesn't have to take away money to send the rich away empty. There are plenty of people who remain rich but remain very, very, very empty. God will not tolerate the proud. But at the same time, he will uplift and exalt the humble. There's a real nervousness I feel today among Christians in Christian circles. We feel intimidated, and that's understandable, by the proud atheists of our world and our culture. But let me say, God is not intimidated. God is going to scatter the Sydney Morning Herald columnist who mocks him, or the new atheist professor who sneers at Christian belief, or the premier of a state who calls his decrees bigotry. God is the God of Psalm 2 who laughs from his throne room in heaven and opposes the proud but exalts the humble. He is the God who reverses in order to rescue. And once again, Mary is a model for us of that kind of humility. Her song, really, in verses 46 to 49, could be summarized like this. I'm a nobody, she sings. I deserve nothing. Yet God has raised me up and blessed me with this son. For the rest of human history, people will will remember me for how much God has blessed me. That's how the song begins, and this is how it concludes in 50 to 53. God will do for every human being who fears him what he has done for me. Just for the last few moments, I want to dig in to what she says. There in verse 47, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. Mary is somebody who knows she needs a Saviour. I'm afraid the Roman Catholic doctrine that says that Mary was sinless is untrue. Mary, like all of us, is a sinner who needs a Saviour. She describes her humble estate in verse 48 and again speaks of the humble estate in verse 52. And that speaks of moral humility, somebody who knows that they are morally messed up. A man has just so much Christianity as he has humility, said one author. Mary knows of her need. Well, verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him. Time and again in the Bible, it is right and proper for us to fear 
God. That is, in other words, to acknowledge God's position of authority, acknowledge him as he is, him as God and us as creatures. Or verse 53, he is the one who fills the hungry with good things. That is the spiritually hungry, those who know they have nothing to contribute, people who are messed up but hunger and thirst for the righteousness that God alone can supply. The hungry who are made rich. And those hungry people, which is good news for us, can be materially rich people as well. Later in Luke, we find a middle-class fisherman, the wife of a senior palace official, a rich tax collector, and many others, evidencing the same spiritual humility and hunger, a recognition of their need of salvation as the leper and the prostitute and the labourer and so on. And so as we draw to a conclusion this morning, we must remember that we too, like Mary, are undeserving nobodies. How quickly we forget that by the evidence of our talents or our exam results in a previous time or success in work and career or perhaps even in sport or a happy family or religious service and position. None of it counts for anything. Yet God has reached down to us as he did to the lowly Mary and blessed us in Mary's son with every spiritual blessing in the present and one day to experience fully when he returns. What then is the secret to joy this Christmas? Because it is a season of real joy, not tinsel thin, but deep. We can rejoice because we have a God who remembers to rescue us individually, all those who trust in him. But we have in the Lord Jesus Christ also one who reverses to rescue, who will scatter the proud but will exalt the humble. We pray together. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your living word. We thank you for your promise to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this morning that you would help us to see ourselves truly as those who come to you with nothing, only our sin to offer you, And that through that realization and as we trust in you, you would give us great joy and exalt us and make us rich in you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.